0: Marty Frederick and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Alright, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good buddy, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man?
1: Well, you know, I'm just living life. It, you know, it's it's summer, so like tons of fun stuff to do during the day. And then like you look outside the window in the evening, and if there's a light on the porch, you can barely see to the like out to the yard because there's bugs everywhere <laughs> it's just like t- i mean it, dude i think we talked about cicadas on a recent podcast so i don't mean to gross. keep talking about bugs but like it's just like that's the one part of the summer that's like totally gross when it's like bugs everywhere like in, especially at nighttime so. do you get
0: lightning bugs or, or fireflies i don't know what you call them
1: do you get yeah them? i call them both i mean because they are i mean they're, um i think it's like july as we start to see those but yeah we do get them they're amazing I love I do like those
0: sweet yeah I've seen a couple of them here not too many when we used to live at like at our old house in the woods uh you know that wasn't Baltimore City yeah <laughs> there was like tons of them everywhere uh yeah it's been hot man like crazy summer's going around things at the brewery are like crushing it like we we had no idea to measure like how it's going to be because last like this time last year during uh was covid more covid times so we couldn't have people there so had no idea how to gauge how the summer is going to be and so far it's been crazy and i'm not yeah. complaining that's good you know good for business yeah.
1: but totally man well when from you, what when
0: are you going to come out and have some beer so
1: it looks it looks like mid-july i'm going to be out there yeah. all right i'm coming so maybe,
0: we just maybe we should like record a podcast together or something.
1: Maybe in like the, the thing is, is like all that needs to happen is like Noel just needs to say it's OK for me to stay there. There we so, go. And then since since she's not listening, I know that I could say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just call her.
1: Give her a phone
0: call. Yeah. yeah. See what she says. Sweet. All right, man. Well, we do have a guest with us today, so we should probably invite her into the conversation. What do you
1: think? Yes. I
0: think all so. right. Sweet. Well, friends with us today. We have Rachel Pie jones Rachel, how are you?
2: I'm great. It's good to be here with you guys.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for taking some time to hang out with us today.
1: Yeah.
2: My pleasure.
1: Well, Rachel, would you be willing just to give us a, a brief background of who you are and uh, what you do?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I am in Djibouti, which it's summertime here as well, and you were talking about the most annoying thing of summer. For you, it's the bugs. For us, it's the heat. It is really, really hot where I am right now. It's a little country in the Horn of Africa. And I think the temperature today was about 112 degrees. And then you take into consideration the humidity and it's it's just hot, hot Man. all the time. Man. So yeah, so that's where I am. I'm in Djibouti. It's a small country in the Horn of Africa bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and then the Red Sea and Yemen across the water to the north. But I am an American originally, so my family has lived here since 2004 in Djibouti. And since 2003, we were in the Horn of Africa. We started in Somalia. So that's a little bit about where I'm at and where I'm from.
1: Nice. Well, and I have to ask, and maybe it isn't a thing. Josh knows that I'm going to nerd out for a second. So I know that Ethiopia, Yemen, places like that are really, 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 really big coffee places. Um, Is the coffee industry in Djibouti, A big thing, or is it? Is it more so like the surrounding areas that that's the thing?
2: It's a little hard to say that any kind of industry in Djibouti is a big thing. We don't even have a million people, and so Yemen and Ethiopia are just massive compared to us. So everything that we get, coffee, pretty much all food, it's imported. So we get it from Ethiopia, but we don't make anything ourselves to send out. Got it.
1: Got it. I just knew that agriculturally, it might be a similar, you know geographies. So that's why I was asking. But um, another another uh, question we like to ask guests, Rachel, um, uh, it's kind of a funky one, um, and it might not um, culturally apply to Djibouti, but we figure <laughs> it will ask anyway. Uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team?
2: Yeah, ice hockey. <laughs> um, you know, ice, it's, like I said, it's so hot here. So we like ice, but we certainly don't, have any on the ground ever but i am from minnesota originally and so when i was growing up we had the north stars but they're not there anymore so now they have the wild i have to say um i've never been to a game i've been in africa for 18 years you know so um we are more football like i mean soccer kind of people
1: got it got it well yeah and and hockey is it's it's even a niche Sport in the United States. So to, <laughs> so to get into it somewhere like Djibouti, I feel like would be really tough. Um, well, uh, so then uh, I guess our last question that we like to ask guests. Um, uh, this one's more serious: is um, what is the most important aspect of your faith you have had to rethink?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great question to start off with the deep stuff. Um, I think for me in my context. It, I grew up in a Christian family, went to a Baptist church, still am a member in the United States of a Baptist church, but then I spent the last almost half my life around Muslims. And so I've had to really look at and re examine what it means when um, people who don't share my faith convictions are also served by love and comfortable in their own faith tradition. What does that say about? My faith, what does that say about their faith? What does that say about how we can re- interact and relate with each other? Um, what does that mean about God? What does that mean about identity? All those kinds of things. So, I guess what that comes back to is just me having to really examine what is faith and why do I love what I love when there are other people out there who don't love that and yet are content in their own faith system. Um, and that's really been the, the exploration, the story of the last. 18 20 years of my life.
1: Yeah, that's That's beautiful.
0: Yeah. I like it and also too just for like clarifying purposes, the reason you ended up in Africa was not like a missionary kind of thing, right? Like
2: Well, it's a it's a complicated question because right. as a Christian we have we have a call to be loving God, loving our neighbor. And part of that is communicating what we love. But the word missionary is really, it just has a lot of baggage, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Africa. I I think all over the world, but there's a lot of messy history, colonialism, and that kind of stuff with that term. It's loaded and it's not a word that we—that me and my husband identify with here. My husband has been a professor. So he's had, you know, jobs. He's been under local bosses, local authorities for almost the whole time we've been here from the very beginning. In 2003, he had a job at a university in Somaliland. And then in Djibouti, he worked at the university here up until 2016, when the government asked us to open up our own school, and he has a PhD in education. And so, you know, our identity here is as educators, professor. Um, And it, yeah, so that word isn't one that we identify with. But I understand, I know that, especially American Christians, consider pretty much if you are a Christian living abroad they they lump you in that category right and so it's a tricky conversation and we do love to talk about faith it's part of it's one of my favorite things to do and so you know what does that mean in that term um for me I don't use it but I'm a christian living and loving cross-culturally so if people call me that okay
0: right on cool thank you for the for clarifying that I, I think it'll be helpful uh, for our listeners. But Today, um, we're super excited to have you on, uh, because if you don't know this, you wrote a book recently, so congratulations on that. (laughs) And yeah, listeners, it's called Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. And I was super excited when um, uh, the publisher reached out to us and was like, hey, does this look interesting? And I was like, yes, absolutely, 100%. (laughs) We would love to talk with Rachel. So we're excited that you're here. Um, but just for starters, how did a book like this even come to be? And like, who, who is your audience? Who are you trying to write for?
2: So I am I'm a writer at my heart. Like my core is to write. And so from the beginning, when we were living in the Horn of Africa, I just I've been writing down our experiences partly to help me process them, remember them, um, partly to be able to pass them on to our kids. Um, This is kind of what it looked like for you growing up in this part of the world, because I knew that it was obviously so different from how I grew up, and I wanted to keep a, a record of this. But then over time, the stories, they really started to, as I wrote, I started to understand better what I was thinking and what I was feeling about what we were experiencing, especially around faith and some of the big questions I was asking, the transformations that were happening. And so the stories just started to kind of coalesce around the five pillars of Islam, which is where the title comes from. It's the creed, prayer, um, giving, fasting, and the pilgrimage. So these five pillars of Islam, I started to recognize that my life was sort of rotating or centered around them because of the dynamic of living in a Muslim country. And so the stories were around those five pillars as well. Um, and as I was writing these down, I I did start to think about who would I like to read this stuff? It's more than just for my kids. It became much more than that. And um, I wanted to write a book that would appeal to both Christians and Muslims, and people of no faith, honestly. People who are willing to ask big questions about their own faith, to cross religious boundaries, um, to hear from other people about their faith. And I hadn't really read a book like that. you know, living this life and asking questions about Christianity and Islam, I've read books that were more polemic, that were more argumentative and trying to prove, you know, which one is better and which one is more right and which one is more attractive. But I hadn't, I I struggled to find a story that was just about someone's own personal response to a different religion without converting to that religion, you know, so while still holding on to their own convictions. Um, And so, so, yeah, the story, it just kind of came out of this place of longing of what I wanted to hear and the conversations that I wanted to have with people. Um, And I really, it was really important to me to write a book that would be um, comfortable and interesting and even attractive to both Christians and Muslims. I didn't want to alienate either side of that conversation. So I was able to have some local friends, Muslim friends, help me by reading the manuscript a couple of times and making sure that I was know being respectful and honest about their perspective of islam and then the same for christians so yeah
0: sweet well um just like a follow-up to that uh that i thought of while you were speaking the since you were born here in the states and then first moved to uh somaliland like what were like some of like the biggest like cultural like shocks for you, or like things that you know were just different. And then also, I'm interested, like, with your with your children, um, it's like living in Africa, all they know, and like how like how has that dynamic been uh, raising kids in Africa at, compared to like oh here if you were if you were in the states.
2: So I'm gonna answer the first question, and if I forget the second one, remind me to come back to it. Um, in the beginning. I felt like everything, every single thing was different. Culturally, I I come from a suburb of Minneapolis where I blend in pretty easily. I have blonde, curly hair. My whole family was Christian. My community was pretty homogenous. I mean, I just didn't have to think about things. Um, And then we come to this village in northern Somaliland where people had almost never seen a white person before certainly hardly any white kids before so we stand out you know immediately um everything from how I dressed to how I spoke to how I walked on the down the rocky streets to how I got my food I mean everything was different and so it was completely overwhelming I felt like an alien sometimes I felt like I was an actress in a play you know putting on a costume and memorizing lines to go out and try to make something happen of my day. I I was utterly dependent on our neighbors, on our local, you know, Somali neighbors and the professors at the school. I couldn't I didn't know how to even get to the market to get food to feed my family the very first day. So immediately I was cast on the mercy of the people around us who were not used to someone so weird. <laughs> you know, I was such an outsider and I and that kind of experience is transformative to be the person who needs to be loved and needs to be welcomed um, because we're pretty helpless. And it's, it's humbling. It's humiliating. Sometimes when you make really embarrassing mistakes, you have to be ready to laugh at yourself. Um, but it's so good for character learning and for, and just for developing relationships, for people there to see how, how much I needed them. And to be able to reach out to this American and help me was uh, was amazing. And so I think it was a really good place for us to start with so much stretching that was, everything about me was different. Um, and then about the kids, uh, we had two-year-old twins when we moved to Somaliland. And so now the twins are in the United States in college. And our youngest was born here in Djibouti. She's a sophomore in high school now. And so for them, yeah, it's pretty much their whole life has been spent in Africa. They're they were educated in French up through sixth grade, and now they've been in an English speaking school. Their friends have been from all over the world, but a lot of majority Muslim Djiboutians, Somalis, and others. So for them, they really they love it here. They uh, they heard me say one time that sometimes it can be hard to be in Djibouti, and they looked at me and said, "What are you talking about? It's not hard to be there. It's." we love it. So it's been really great for our kids.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. That's, I don't know. I just, I think the there's so much beauty and goodness that can, that does come from that. Cause I feel like oftentimes, um, especially here in the West uh, and in, in America specifically, we uh, have a tendency to assume that uh, our experience is like the only real one. And, like, everything outside of our experience, that's what's weird and that's what's different. Um, but then you, you know, are placed into this uh, culture where, like, no, this experience here is normal, and now your experience becomes abnormal. Mm-hmm. So I just, I thought that was really interesting. And I like transformative, I thought was a good
2: word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so for my kids going back to the United States now for college, they look American or they look Minnesotan. They, I don't know what a Minnesotan looks like. You know, there's all kinds of Minnesotans, but they speak English like an American. They have some roots there kind of, but they they feel, you know, in their heart more Djiboutian and they really want to speak French. And so they have all this different kind of culture that they're bringing that you can't see from the outside. And so those experiences both, the experiences of raising my kids here and then also of being that outsider have just helped us, my whole family and myself specifically, to be more intentionally empathetic and compassionate and welcoming to other people, recognizing that we might not know what's actually behind what looks like, you know, something I I could make opinions about or judgments about. I have no idea what the story is behind that person or where they're coming from. So it's just that's what I mean by transformative is it helps us to love other people better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's really cool. I, I not, again, not to harp on the missionary thing because it's kind of, a, it's a, it's an interesting distinction with what you're doing, but uh, missions has always been something that's been very near and dear to my heart. Every, every international and intercultural experience I've ever had has been better. Like I've walked into it saying, okay, God, like, I wonder you know, how you might use me, how I might, how, how you might interact with me. And I always feel much more cared for the other way from the people that I'm going to meet with than I, and then they say the opposite, like, oh my gosh, no, you, you were amazing. It was so great to have you, but you know, you always feel like, oh my gosh, like, so like, so transformative is like, as we've said, that's the perfect word. Um, but I'm curious to ask, um, so I'm sure there's tons, but I'd love to know just a few. What what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about Islam?
2: Yeah, so many. Um, I think one of the ones that's the most damaging is that Muslims or Islam are violent. Like it, that it's part of the religion or inherent in every Muslim. And that's just not true. And so I wanna say unequivocally, that is not true. Um, We have to look at our own Old Testament scriptures, our own cultural heritage as Christians, and also see some things that are violent, right? But that does not mean that Christianity is inherently violent or that every Christian is violent. So I think that, uh, or this idea that Muslims are our enemy, that we're against each other in some way. I think those are really damaging misconceptions and ones that I have absolutely not experienced. I shouldn't say that exactly. I mean, I have experienced violence and violent things here, but they are not Islamic violence or Muslim violence. Um, They're just broken people in a broken world. And so those kinds of things happen. Um, You know, I had someone in the United States say to me one time in Minnesota, who knew that we lived here. He just looked at me and he said, aren't you afraid that all those Muslims want to kill you all the time? And I just, it made me so sad because. For one, if I really thought that, I could not live here or raise my family here for 18 years. If I really thought that, all the people here were trying to kill us all the time. Um, But it made me say that that would be his idea because he lived in a community where there were a lot of Somalis, actually, because Minnesota has the largest population of Somalis in North America. And so for him to have that idea and then to go about in his community thinking these people were people he should be afraid of, or protect himself against or divide himself from it just was so sad when instead he could be welcoming he could be a good neighbor he could be um someone who helped the newcomer you know adjust to the united states and so i think th- those are some really damaging ideas and then some other misconceptions are that we are so different and on the one hand yes we are different we're very different in our foundational theological beliefs in the ways that we exercise modesty, and you know some of our specific spiritual practices or ideas about Jesus were different. But at the same time, we have a lot in common. We share an Abrahamic tradition that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We have so many prophets in common. We have similar ideas about prayer, about giving, about caring for the poor, about fasting. And so I, I think some of those misconceptions that we are only different can also be really damaging because if we are willing to look at what we have in common and start there, we can actually form relationships, we can work together, we can grow. Um, it's just so much more valuable and true.
1: Yeah and you know it, as you were talking about um, the violence aspect, I, I thought about something that I was recently made aware of that um, over the over the weekend in Chicago, Um, There were 21 murders over the weekend just recently. And so when I think about violence and I consider people just assuming that um, a Muslim country would just be full of violence and that um, it would be Muslim violence, you know, Muslim people angry at Christians or angry at other people. I think they're watching things on the news and they're sort of painting a broad brush um, but then forgetting about what happens literally in their backyard in in, you know, in the United States. And I remember visiting Mexico once did, I did some research because it was a youth group trip and some parents were concerned about the violence. And I actually determined that um, living in the living in Chicago is actually statistically more dangerous. You have a, you have a higher chance of being shot or involved in some type of violence than the place we were going to in Mexico. But people get this picture in their mind excuse me and then all of a sudden it becomes this thing and so it's i think it's worth us recognizing that you know like josh was saying earlier like our experience might not be the best experience just because it's ours there might be places where things are either more peaceful or different and we can't assume that it's just awful in this other place (laughs) and Mm -hmm. in the truth be told you would probably if you were to give it a chance and do some do some reading or a visit um, and start building some relationships there you would find that it's much more beautiful than you ever could have imagined and you'd feel safer <laughs> than you would in a place like walking around down to, i mean you shouldn't have to be scared mm-hmm. anywhere um but if you if you're you know 21 people over just two days is mm-hmm. too many And I I would venture to guess that not that many people were were killed in Djibouti over the weekend. And so I I think there's an interesting dichotomy there, but so.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the benefits here that I've experienced of sticking out is that the community actually looks out for the foreigners. They actually protect the, the person who might be maybe not vulnerable economically or vulnerable in certain ways, but vulnerable as an outsider they will, and not every time, but nine times out of 10, that something might be happening. People around will step up on my behalf or intervene for my kids. Like it's it's amazing to watch the community look out for each other here. And so I I have felt, you know, really comfortable sending my kids out for bike rides when they were young or myself going running after dark. It, it's quite safe as a country.
0: Yeah, I wonder too, just the... um the proximity of, of, uh, being with people, I think is so huge. And that's what I learned. Uh, when I, so when I first seriously encountered Islam was, uh, during my time in, in college, um, we had to take a religion that wasn't Christianity class. And so I took, uh, Islam and my professor, uh, uh George Pickens was, uh, lived in Africa for like 40 years. Um, amongst Muslim peoples, and he was friends with all the, um, like, imams in the area, and, like, he would bring in different Muslim friends, and um, they would speak to our class, and then we were allowed to ask, like, any questions that we wanted, like, literally anything, um, and there was just so much, like, like grace and welcome, um, and that really, that proximity and, and um, being in relationship with people is really what's, like, shifts things because even if like i was never i never grew up being taught by my parents or or anything like that um negative things about uh muslims but because of the tv shows and movies and like the news and all that kind of stuff you realize that you have these like Mm -hmm. like internal you know um prejudice or whatever that you don't recognize at the time and then like taking that class on islam was so helpful and it was really cool um, and like we even got to go to a, a mosque. They welcomed us uh, to the mosque and uh, we we sat in on a service um, and then the imam came over and talked to us afterwards and, you know, answered any questions and uh, gave us Qurans if we wanted to. So I took one. I, I have it on my bookshelf still. Um, but just that I don't know. I, I love what you're you're saying about the, the relationship and the proximity and how truly transforming that that is.
1: Yeah, it's you know, almost it's- as if it's, if it's almost as if it's sorry to jump in quick, but it's almost as if it's, it's better to be cool to people <laughs> than to not, you know, like, it's almost as if like, like, majority of individuals have figured that out. And like, whether you're Muslim or Christian or atheist or whatever, you know, like, the way of the way of Jesus, the way of however you want to look at it, the way of goodness is just being good to people. (laughs) So, sorry, I I just wanted to say that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I I just want to add, too, that it takes some kind of intentionality, like even more than just being in proximity or in relationship. So there was our youngest daughter was attending the French school here. It's a, a local school, but they speak French. So the school one day just automatically shut down and sent everybody home because there had been a terror attack in Paris. And because there was that connection to this school, they just felt like to be extra safe, let's send all the kids home. So my daughter came home and she said, she was maybe in um, fourth grade. And she said, mom, are Muslims trying to kill us? And I thought, where on earth would she have heard that? Because she never would have heard that in our home. She's in this Muslim country. Her teacher at that time was a Djiboutian Muslim woman, a Somali woman. And I said, does Madame Hibo want to kill you? And she said, oh, no, of course not. We're making origami and we're doing math. And then I asked her, you know, does your friend so-and-so and so, all these friends I listed off, do they want to kill you? And she said, no, of course not. And so I was trying to help her understand, I don't even know where she had got that idea from and she couldn't articulate where it was from, but it just made me really realize as a parent and as anybody in the world that we need to be also speaking this truth. To kids or to neighbors and other people, we can't just be expecting people to absorb the need to just be good to each other, or that you know they're not all trying to kill us.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I, I totally agree. It, not not making it just as simple as just being good. It, it has to be intentional, like you're saying, of course. Um, so, uh, I guess the the next question that is kind of a, a big portion of the book that you you've written um, is you've kind of talked about. Uh, the five pillars of Islam. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to walk through those for us. Uh, Maybe just explain the pillar and then what this pillar has taught you about your own Christian faith.
2: Sure. So the five, the the foundational one, which is really the only one of belief, is called the Shahada. And this is the creed. And it's what you say to become a Muslim. And so uh, it's, there's no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet is what a person would say in Arabic with, if you have a conversional faith, then that's how you become a Muslim. And so this idea of creed and, and uh, a global thing that all Muslims share was really interesting to me to think about as a Baptist who comes from a pretty, very non-liturgical tradition where we never really talked about the creeds. I kind of knew they were out there, but we didn't study them or read them. And so it made me, curious about what what does it mean? Who is God? How do we become a person who has committed to or converted to that kind of religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity? And so that um, idea of the Shahada in the book, I, I write about wrestling with the sense of who is God? How do we know God? And what does it mean to belong to a certain tradition? And the second one, so the rest of the other four then are all practice. They're all things people do after you make that um, initial statement of faith. The second one is the Salat, um, which is prayer. And there's there's different kinds of prayer in Islam, but the one that is the pillar, the Salat is the structured ritual prayer that maybe people have seen Muslims engaging in. It happens five times a day is what they're supposed to do, five times per day at set times. And they they recite memorized prayers in Arabic and it's combined with washing the body before prayer. And then during the prayers, there's bowing and there's kneeling and standing up in different motions that they do. And so um, that I, the idea again of a, a global body of Muslims, everyone's praying the same thing, doing the same motions at the same time uh, was really interesting to me. And also the idea of the way they move their bodies And I know in Christianity, we have people who do bow or kneel, but it's much less a part of what we do in prayer. And I grew up praying with my hands folded and my eyes closed and pretty, yeah, pretty rigid. Um, And the idea of praying with my eyes open and looking at the world around me and the people in the room with me while I'm praying, um, that's been something that's been really good for my prayer life. I feel like I'm more engaged in what God is doing and what I'm feeling and and then even the the ability to move one's body in prayer has been something that I've thought a lot more about because of the Muslims around us. And we hear the call to prayer. There's mosques on almost every neighborhood. You know, you can hear the call to prayer every day at those set times. <clears throat> and so sometimes, you know, it just blends into the background. I can ignore it, but then sometimes I really hear it and and feel called to prayer myself as well. And so that's something I, I write a lot about in the book of how, um, Sometimes this longing would come up in me to pray with my Muslim friends, um, and yet at the same time knowing that that makes people on both sides it can make them uncomfortable. So, where is that longing coming from, and how can we how can we partner together in prayer? Um, the the third pillar is zakat, which is the pillar of giving alms or charity. And so this was also one of the most fascinating things I learned as I researched for the book. Um, was that in Islam, the traditional kind of tithe or what's expected for someone to give as there's is 2.5%. And in Christianity, most people would say 10%. But in practice, when they've looked at research and looking at what Christians actually give, they generally give 2.5%. And so this idea of um, the the two, like Islam, I kind of saw as aspirational, or sorry, Christianity, I saw as aspirational, you know, this is a high calling and a high expectation and islam is kind of more realistic like this is what humans are going to do um i found that fascinating to think about and then under with with grace and with jesus when we fall short you know christ makes up that gap in some sense for us that's not exactly what happens but we're able to um you know god has this expectation of be perfect as your father is perfect right which we can't be, we're never gonna give all, we're never gonna reach the most, but under grace because of Christ we can. And so those two things just help me really see those differences, but also some of the things that we share about our faith. Um, The fourth pillar then is Ramadan, which is fasting. So this is one that it's every year, Muslims all over the world during the same month for 30 days, will fast from both food and drink from sunrise until sunset. So no food, no drink. It's hard. It's really hard. When I first heard about the Ramadan fast, I thought, oh, that's not so hard because at night you can just eat as much as you want, or you can sleep, you know, during the day if you don't have to work or be at school. Um, And we have fasting in Christianity as well, but it's not so global. It's not so structured or set in how you're supposed to do it. And so when I tried the Muslim fast um, out of you know, solidarity with my friends and to learn about it. I just realized how it is so hard to go, especially without water. But after 30 days, too, I mean, you get hungry, even if you have eaten a lot at night. And so I learned a lot about fasting and um, corporate fasting and Lent, even as a practice that Christians have engaged in for centuries and as a global body. So then the last one is Hajj, which is pilgrimage. And so that's the fifth pillar. And Every Muslim, if they can afford it and have means to do it, at least once in their lifetime, are supposed to go to Mecca and participate in this Hajj ritual. Um, And that was fascinating to me also to research and study because it's the one practice that I feel like as a Christian, it's the hardest to understand or to see. I can see the prayer. I can talk to my friends about fasting. You know, I hear the call to prayer. I see people giving, giving alms and giving money to beggars. But the Hajj is sort of this mysterious thing that no Christian is allowed to go on. And so it was just really interesting to listen to stories, read books and watch documentaries and ask friends who have been on it, um, what it was like. So, and then also to examine um, in my own sort of experience and life and faith, what is pilgrimage and where are we going and what's it all, what are some of the rituals that we engage in and what's it for? So that's a perhaps a long-winded answer to your question about covering those five pillars and a little overview of how I interact with them.
0: Yeah, no, that was perfect. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> and I love to like listeners, just so you know, that's uh, how Rachel breaks down her book. And so each section is one of the five pillars. And then, um, you know, she she writes extensively about those and it's, it's really cool. I thought that was very creative uh, how you did that. Um, mm-hmm but one thing that I I think is interesting and um, maybe some listeners are thinking this because I know that this is often taught um, to Christians is that there's a pillar of Islam uh, called jihad, but that's not true. It's not one of the five pillars.
2: (laughs) Well, it's not one of the five.
0: Yeah. So with, but with jihad, there's, um, there's misconceptions around the idea of jihad though as well, right? Um, it's not, so when, and I mean, forgive my ignorance, um, but jihad is often presented as like, like a physical holy war kind of thing, right? Like killing people in the name of Islam. Um, but isn't there more so an understanding of, of jihad as well that is more an internal aspect? Like all of us have our internal Uh, jihad, like a spiritual um, kind of thing?
2: Yeah, yeah. So some people would say that jihad is sort of a sixth pillar, um, but it's not one of the, it's not as foundational as the five. And I do, I write about the jihad. I end up bringing it up in the section on the hajj, on pilgrimage, because during the years of the crusade, some of the early popes and early crusaders were calling that crusade a pilgrimage. And so I I ended up using that to connect with this idea of jihad and violence. And there is, there's a concept of the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. So the greater jihad, the one that's actually more important for Muslims to engage in is the jihad against sin and self and selfishness and, and these kinds of things that would separate a Muslim from God, from Allah, where the, the lesser jihad would be sort of this holy war concept. And so there is an idea in Islam that um, to to, you're allowed to protect, you're allowed to engage in war to protect your family, your community, yourself. And so it's out there, but it's not. um, There's a lot of structure kind of around it that has come up from Muslim theologians about what is allowed to be considered sort of actual lesser jihad. But the one that that the vast, vast, vast majority of Muslims do engage in is that greater jihad of fighting against sin in themselves.
0: Sweet. Thank you. Um, So I think for us on our podcast, one thing that um, we really focus on, it's kind of one of our like foundational uh, models or frameworks, if you will, is a centered set approach to theology, um, which is, uh, forgive me if you already know this, Um, But basically, a a bounded set is when you build a wall or a fence and say, here's the fence. Everything has to fit inside this little fence or this box. And that's what it means to be a Christian or a a Baptist or, you know, whatever. Um, And then there's a centered set approach, which places something at the center. Uh, In our case, it's Jesus. And then things um, kind of go out from there. And there's things that are either pointing to Jesus or pointing away and are either further or closer. Um, But Jesus starts at the center. And then um, outside of that here, I have like a little diagram. So you can see like you can picture the target logo. Um, The one outside from Jesus is then dogma, which is anything that uh, the universal church affirms, uh, which basically the really the only thing is, is like the Apostles Creed. Like these are the things, you know, people affirm this, whatever. Um, And then outside of that is doctrine, uh, which is basically people's theological musings on dogma like oh here's how we think that works out um and people disagree with that people have different doctrinal opinions um but you like can't kick people out of faith for having different doctrinal thoughts um and then the outside circle out of that would then be opinion um so it's like really out there like okay carpet or you know hard floor are we in a gymnasium or are we in a cathedral like what are we doing and so jesus is the center um seems like it could offer something special um to interfaith dialogue between muslims and christians and so this is a roundabout way of asking what role does jesus play in islam and then also with this centered set approach to theology do you think um for christians trying to engage in interfaith dialogue in a way that's genuine um does that seem like it would be a helpful thing
2: yeah so first question what role does Jesus play in Islam is that he is he's all over the Quran Jesus is he's known as Isa or Isa al-Masih Jesus the Messiah even in the Quran and so there are stories of his virgin birth Mary is the only woman who is named in the Quran there are other women who show up but she's the only one who has a name she's a whole chapter the surah or the chapter of Mary <clears throat> Jesus is um Born to a virgin, he's he speaks miraculously from the cradle. And then later in his life, he does miracles. Um, there's very much obviously dispute about whether or not he died and rose. You know, that's not something that Muslims believe in, but there's also a belief that he's coming back in the end, at the end of the ages to judge people and to then reign forever. And so there's a lot of things that we can start talking about there, about. Who Jesus was and what he did and what it means to be Messiah, things like that. And so when I think about a, a centered set, it sounds it's an idea, it's familiar to me, but I haven't thought deeply about it. But I do think we can start with Jesus. And then what are some of the um the things that we share in common? I have this idea actually, um, in my mind of the, the kingdom of God where Jesus is reigning, he's the king. And I don't get real excited about what somebody calls themselves in terms of their religious identity. you know what? in some countries you have to check a box on a card to be a Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever. Um, I'm much more concerned or interested in how someone relates to Jesus far and above their identity. you know Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't even a Christian. And so let's just start there and Mary and all the disciples. So um this this kingdom of God in which Jesus is reigning, you don't get in that by changing the title on your identity card. So it's a circle. So I think in my mind, I'm thinking a circle and a centered set. They're related. Um, and you, you know, there are people who might identify even as Christian, but have really no concept of Jesus. They're, they're, um, what was the first set out? Was it dogma or they're the, the Apostles' Creed? They don't know what that is. You know, they're not engaging on that level with Jesus they just identify culturally almost more with this sort of Christian thing. And that kind of person, I I don't necessarily see as inside the kingdom of God. They're not participating in the life of the kingdom or the relationship with this king and the way that he lived and and loved and cared for the poor and the vulnerable and all these sorts of things that we read about that Jesus did. Um, And then you can be someone else. You You can be Jewish by identity, by cultural identity. But you can have such a relationship with Jesus, such a commitment to trusting Him, following Him, loving Him, being part of the way that you—you know—you're participating in the life of the kingdom, and so that you're inside that circle. So there's overlapping circles, maybe like culturally, maybe still Jewish in some ways, but really following the way of Jesus. Can a Muslim participate in the kingdom of God? There's a they, there's an idea in the Quran of the kingdom of God. Can they participate in that kingdom? You know, believing things about Jesus that are, um, you know, foundational that we could even share, but their cultural identity, the way that they are still living in the world or, um, you know, covering their head for women, all kinds of different cultural things we could maybe think about, Um, fasting in a certain way, I think that that's possible to do and still participate in the kingdom of God, depending on one's relationship to Jesus, like it does come back to that core of what do you believe about Jesus, what has he done, what has he accomplished? Um, how you relate and interact with him. And then those cultural things are more outside. Uh, like like you said, about opinion or you know, doctrine, things like that. So, I mean, that can be disputed and there, you know, there's a lot more that could be said about it, but that's how I think about Jesus and the, and the idea of the kingdom and participating in that life of the kingdom through Jesus.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, I think it's wonderful because uh it, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's oftentimes when we're so uh, exclusionary or trying to build a wall of who's in and who's out or check this box or or that box or whatever, then the the main thing stops being the main thing. And oftentimes I feel like Jesus gets lost. And then we can just say, oh, because we believe this or we believe that, then we're Christians, we're the good ones we're in. Uh, but then there's people that are, to use your language, participating in the kingdom of heaven we're um, living into the way you know the a, a better way to be human the life that jesus came to offer um and they might not necessarily check all the same boxes that we do um but they're also very much at home in the kingdom and i i don't know i love that i love how you talk about that that's awesome
1: yeah me too and i th- i think it's important to um you know we we keep going back to this josh before uh about a year ago we had, rob bell on the podcast and one of the things he pointed out was um you oftentimes find jesus in someone else's story um and i and i i think i think there's beauty in that you know when you, when you hear somebody else share where they're coming from and share themselves you, you find jesus there um and that's all centered around relationship <laughs> the same way that jesus was centered around relationship with people jesus it wasn't enough for him to just you know say hey to somebody or shake someone's hand he wasn't like the presidential or like like a dignitary or something that did like the line of people outside the event where he shook hands or kissed babies like he didn't want to do just that like he wanted to like know the people that he came into interaction with um so that's um that's just that 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 speaks to me in a deep way um and that kind of leads us to this next question um And just as far as relationship and, and, you know, that kind of thing is concerned, but what are you most grateful for in regards to um, the relationships and interactions you've had with the Muslim people you now call friends?
2: Also so many things, so many ways to answer that question. Um, One is that I'm just so grateful to them for helping me re-examine my own faith to dig deeper into it. You know, there's, Hagar is a woman that comes up in my book and in my conversations with friends that I had never really thought about her but because of my friendships with Muslims I started to really think about her and who was she what was her role with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and what role does she continue to play and so I'm so thankful that living this life that has really challenged my faith has made me ask harder questions and dig deeper into what I what I already thought I knew but to know it better so that's that's like a a big picture a spiritual thing. Um, I am so thankful for the people who have welcomed us and loved us well. I mean, we have had such good friends, my husband and myself both. I, I gave birth here to our third daughter or third child. And so, you know, in that way, I'm, I'm really rooted to this place, um, to the Somali midwife who was the first woman to catch my baby. It was a Muslim woman, you know, and she, it was 9 11. So September 11, 2005, so not the 9-11, but this idea of of me, an American Christian woman giving birth on 9-11, and a Muslim Somali woman is the first person to catch my baby. I mean, it just was profoundly beautiful to me that we could do this thing together and bring a life into the world. And so there have been friends that... I mean, friends who just laugh at us because we're kind of ridiculous sometimes culturally and we're doing things weird, even still, you know, I don't have it all figured out and I'm I'm doing things still in my cultural way. And so they've, they've helped us laugh at ourselves. They have um, taken such good care of us when there's been at certain points over the last, you know, 18 years, there have been different issues that have come up in the world that have caused insecurity. And so, for example, when Osama bin Laden was killed We had several friends call us that day and tell us, before we even knew what had happened, they said, hey, why don't you just stay home for the day? You know, don't come to work, don't come to school, we'll just look out for you, make sure you're okay. Things like that, you know, over time that have just continued to happen where people are actively and graciously looking out for us and then putting up with our mistakes culturally and, and welcoming us into their lives has been, I'm just so thankful.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And I, As you were talking to, I was reminded of one of the things um, that you talked about in your book, uh, because a lot of times, at least how I grew up um, in the church, we were taught about like basically converting people in these relationships that we had. Um, and I thought it was interesting how you talked about in your book, the idea of it's not so much conversion within the Islamic faith, because they assume everybody is already uh, a part of Islam, right? And that you've you've fallen away from it if you don't practice. And so it's it's like a going back into, is that right?
2: Yeah, so I'm an infidel. I have rejected what I was born as. Right. There's an idea of fitra, it's called, where every human ever born is born Muslim. And so they don't actually convert. So if you are a Muslim, you've just always been one since birth. If you're not a Muslim and then you become a Muslim. So like me, I, I acted as a Christian my whole life. If I became a Muslim now, I wouldn't be a convert. I would be a revert yeah. because I have reverted back to my original state.
0: Yeah. And so how, like, how is that relationship, how has that played out relationally with your, your Muslim friends? Like how, what has that dynamic been like being a Christian and then also them being a Muslim and, you know, the tension that that could kind of come up there, what has that been like?
2: You know, mostly it comes up in terms of being called an infidel. There's a okay. small Sonol- gallo or galeda for women. Um, and people who don't know me will often use that to refer to me. It's kind of, it's another way of also saying foreigner or white person. Um, but the literal translation is infidel. And so, you know, I, if it's a person that I'm in a conversation with, then I'll kind of I'll get exaggeratedly offended, like, hey, I'm not an infidel. Why are you calling me that? I have a deep faith. And so then that's that's a real Somali kind of reaction. They're, they like to have that. It's not combative, but it's just more in your face type of conversation. And then we'll talk about it, why I don't think I'm an infidel and why they do think I am one. Um, if it's people that I'm in long-term friendship with, and if they hear someone else call me an infidel, they will often say, hey, listen, she's not an infidel. She's kind of weird. She's got this stuff about Jesus and the Bible, but you know, she, she does this other thing. She prays and she gives to poor people and she fasts. So she's kind of like us, but, and so they'll defend me on my behalf. Um, and if it's a stranger and someone I'm not actually in conversation with, and they're just shouting it out, you know, on the street, I just ignore it.
0: Hmm. Right on. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um. Well, I guess uh, just, another question to ask, I think, just super practically uh, for people, especially, um, I guess, for Christians, but Muslims as, as well. What are some good ways that you would recommend um, to build bridges between these two long long-standing faith traditions? Um, because personally, I, I believe that's super important. Uh, because if peace or anything like it is ever going to be worked towards or achieved in the world, then these different faith traditions have to start talking to each other. So what 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 are some things that you would recommend from your experience?
2: I recommend that Christians learn about Islam from Muslims. So I don't feel like my book is about Islam necessarily, although I do hope you come away learning something about it, but it's more about Muslims and people who practice Islam and the humanizing of that faith. But if you want to really, you know, learn about Islam, study it or read about it from a Muslim, not a Christian who will have a certain spin on it, and vice versa for Muslims. Learn about Christianity from a Christian, um, and then reach out relationally. First of all, though, actually, I'm gonna. Um, I want to say, I would encourage both Christians and Muslims to have a real, solid, grounded faith yourself. So there's no threat. We don't need to feel threatened by engaging in a interreligious conversation with someone especially if we are so grounded in our faith that we're not concerned. Like it's such a, the idea that being in a relationship with someone who doesn't believe like me is a threat. What does that communicate about our own faith? That it's so weak and so easily threatened or lost that a certain one conversation with someone who disagrees is going to make me lose it all. Um, You know, I just encourage people to love God and then love your neighbor. Like do the greatest commandment, what Jesus told us to do of um, loving God, really grounding yourself there and then reaching out to love your neighbors. So like you said, you went to a mosque, maybe you could visit a mosque, maybe that's a pretty big step for some people, but you could just say hello to the Muslim on your street or at your Target or grocery store, You know, just to start actually engaging relationally um, is valuable. And there are a lot of, especially around Ramadan, there are a lot of interfaith gatherings. And so when that comes around again next year, most communities that i've seen anyway have some kind of interfaith gathering over meals and over food and so if you can combine it with food that can be really productive as well and so i just encourage people to yeah to not feel threatened we're not um and then not to base that relationship that you're forming on the other person converting or reverting you know either way my real, my friendships with muslims are not hinged on them believing like me we talk about faith a lot all the almost every day i mean islam muslim countries have faith just kind of coming and coming out because of the call to prayer that's happening because they're just speaking godwardly and so faith is a regular part of our conversation and my friendships with people are not based on them agreeing with me i love what i love i love my friend and so i want to talk about what i love with you but if you don't love it back I'm not gonna throw you away. And so enter relationships with that expectation of, even if they don't agree with me, we can still have a really great friendship in our disagreements or about other things. I mean, Muslims also like ice hockey. They also like, you know, ice cream or swimming it's all kinds of things that you know relationship around. It doesn't have to be around these complicated, potentially intimidating ideas of faith. Just people, love people.
1: Well, and I think, you know, when we consider like a recently about, well, not recently, about a year ago, I started working in a a retail place. Uh, I didn't know anybody and I had come out of ministry. And so we're like, everyone has that in common. Everyone's, you know, everyone's a Christ follower there. And you go to work and like, you know, you hear someone preach a sermon saying, when you go to work tomorrow, you know, think about ways you can share your faith with your coworkers or something like that. And for me, that was never, I could never apply that because I was <laughs> I was going to work at church, um, but then when working in a retail space, it started like my my mindset was shifted on that. And I remember being there, and almost none of my coworkers are Christian. You know, they're just it's just a very different kind of place. And um, I found that um, it was much easier to base our relationships off of things we had in common, like you're talking about and being a peacemaker and being the kind of person that is interested in the other person i, I want to know about you what like i would ask, i started asking questions like hey what 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 are the things that are most important to you in life and learning about this person and you know in this cuz sometimes if you say that if you ask that question someone will say oh well you know my faith is really important oh tell me about that and then you can talk about that and listen and i think Christians particularly, but I know that I say that because I'm sure it's across the board. Um, Christians particularly um, believe that Christianity is the only right thing and that anytime someone believes something different, it's our job to correct those behaviors or those feelings or those thoughts. And um, I, I decided that I was going to enter into relationship with people and not try to correct anything about their way and simply listen and I just got to be honest I have stronger deeper friendships and relationships because it was based off of um, understanding who they were and they recognized that there was genuine care coming from me um, towards them so I mean I guess my thing as you were speaking there look the, the word that kept just running through my mind was peacemaker to be a peacemaker, to be somebody that isn't interested in being combative, that isn't interested in being argumentative or having a debate, but someone that's interested in loving and caring and knowing who this person is and meeting them where they are. Um, Like a real friend wants to be invested in the things that make you happy and Mm -hmm. vice versa. That's a genuine relationship. Um, Like Josh, Josh loves hockey and, it was really cool that I also loved hockey when I, when we, when we met each other for the first time, but Josh loves hockey, like to the nth degree above where, where I love hockey. And so it made me interested in wanting to know more about it so that we could continue in conversation and in relationship. Um, so I guess that's, as you were talking, that really stood out to me. Um, I guess, just lastly, the only question we would have um, Rachel, is is there anything um, that you have any closing thoughts on, like anything you'd love to add on what we were on what we've been discussing?
0: Yeah, all right, well, Marty, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, listeners, unfortunately, yeah. it looks like um, right there at the end, as Marty was talking, uh, we lost connection um, with Rachel, but I really enjoyed my time with her, Rachel. Would you listen back to this? Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. for giving us your time, for sharing your story, for writing your book. I uh, really enjoyed it. Listeners, be sure to, you know, pick up a copy. It's called Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts, Marty?
1: I just I loved Rachel's heart. It's it's great. Um, you can tell that, like we were talking about there at the end, that you know, she has care for others uh in a, in a deep way. Um, that, you know, that means more than just simply like, you know, well I'm, I live here, so I, I guess I have to interact with these people like she actually cares about them and um, that's seen in the fact that she has relationship and friendship the other way so um, it's, it's a good example for us. You know, so yeah, absolutely.
0: Right on man. Well, I guess we will shut it down. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Have a great rest of your day, evening, morning, night, whatever it is that you're doing. Car ride. Car ride,
1: yeah. Just keep your eyes on the road. road. Please. And as my father-in-law used to say. Go Caps! No, he would say, shiny side up, rubber side down, keep that B word between the ditches. I don't get it. (laughs) That's what he would say. If you're driving, you know, like, you know, you don't want to, you want the shiny side up, the rubber side down. Keep the bitches between the ditches? Just the bitch between the ditches. Keep that B word, like your car.
0: Referring to the car. I got you. All right.
1: (laughs) I was very confused. All right. It made sense the first time he said it to me. So I was like, got it, Ed. And and, and now, like, it's a jokey thing, but like. Also, because it's like it has that in there, like you have to be careful who you say it around because you play like that's true. You're at church, like, hey, you know, and then they're like, what the heck are you talking about? So My anyway. car,
0: it's a female, yeah.
1: it's your car, a female so. dog.
0: That's yeah, it's the new model. <laughs> I don't
1: know, your model, model Katara.
0: Sweet, <laughs> good deal. All right, guys, uh, we're diverging into the yeah. nothingness, so <laughs> probably we should probably stop. How do we end these things? Uh, peace yeah. and love, guys. Go, Caps
1: and go Blackhawks.